Article 15, Jesus Christ, The Beginning and the End, by Pastor Dan Gaiman. Jesus Christ is the beginning of everything and holds all preeminence in heaven and in earth. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He alone is the creator of the world, the governor of nations, the king of kings, head of all creation, and the head of the church. He is the head over every man and the savior of his people. He alone knows the end from the beginning as well as all events in between. Jesus Christ is the summation and essence of truth. Jesus Christ reigns as Lord over every man, woman, and child who surrenders to his will and lordship. 4,000 years before his conception and birth, the Old Testament proclaimed Jesus as incarnate God and the Messiah in the form of man of the seed of Abraham. The Old Testament records that he is coming. The Gospels tell us he is here. The book of Acts proclaims him. The epistles explain him. And the book of Revelation proclaims that he is coming again. From Revelation 11:15, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Genesis 1.1 begins with this pithy statement. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Jesus Christ was God's agent in creation. John 1 verse 3 declares, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1, 16 and 17 confirms, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. Hebrews 1, 2 reads, God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. St. Paul also told the church at Ephesus that God created all things by Jesus Christ in Ephesians 3.9. Jesus Christ is the focal point where Bible truth intersects. He is the hub of the wheel of truth into which the individual spokes of truth connect. The centrality of the Old and New Testaments is Jesus Christ. This point is clearly evident in the Gospel of Luke where the setting for the final chapter in Luke's Gospel is an event that occurred on the same day as Christ's resurrection from the dead. Two disciples had been in Jerusalem and had witnessed the events surrounding Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. Late in the afternoon on that very day, these two sad and delusioned disciples were walking to their home in Emmaus, a small town located about seven miles northwest of Jerusalem. As they dejectedly walked along, the resurrected Jesus suddenly approached them from behind and heard them talking. He said, What manner of communication are these that ye have one to another? As ye walk and are sad. And the one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered, saying unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass there in these days? They didn't recognize Jesus because he was hidden from them. Luke 24, 19-24 reads, and he, Jesus, said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet, mighty in word and deed before God and all people, and how the chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death, and have crucified him. 
but we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulchre. And when they found not his body, they came, saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them, which were with us, went to the sepulchre, and found it even so as the women had said. But him they saw not. Up to this point, Jesus had maintained his autonomy. That this story unfolded immediately after Christ's resurrection from the dead is truly amazing, on the same day, in fact. Beginning in Luke 24, 25, and 26, Jesus shares something of tremendous value to believers. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In the approximate one and a half hours that this seven-mile walk would have taken, Jesus touched the mountain peaks of Old Testament scripture to open the eyes of these two disciples to the enormous centrality of Jesus Christ in scripture. This was he who is called the living word, expounding on the written word. Think about these statements in verses 25 and 26. Jesus chided the disciples for not believing all that the prophets had spoken about Christ including that Jesus would have to endure tremendous suffering before he could ever enter into glory. Remember, the disciples had wanted Jesus to deliver them from Roman occupation of their homeland and to reign upon the throne of David in a worldwide kingdom with regathered and restored Israel. They missed the idea that Jesus must first endure horrible suffering, humiliation, and even death before he could enter his glorious kingdom. Jesus had warned his disciples repeatedly that he first had to be delivered under the high priest, suffer, and ultimately be killed. Recall this testimony from Jesus found in Mark 8:31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders, of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. This same testimony is found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Luke 24:27 reads, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. We need to drill deeply regarding what Jesus meant to convey to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Beginning in Genesis with Moses' first five books, and continuing through Joshua, Judges, the record of First and Second Samuel, the prophecies of David and Psalms, and all the way through the various prophets to Malachi, Jesus highlighted his nexus in the Old Testament. Without a doubt, Jesus, the Messiah, is the central character of the entire Bible. All references to him unite in perfect harmony, projecting his anticipated and necessary birth, his cruel suffering and horrible death on the cross, his glorious resurrection, his descent into hell and ascension into heaven, and his much anticipated second coming. These books, written over a span of centuries, do not contradict themselves. Rather, they unite to present the exalted one, our King, Jesus Christ. While he is not in every verse, he is the ultimate end of every book. He is above all, knows all, created us all, is Lord of us all, and will one day return to earth to reign over us all. From Genesis to Revelation, Scripture unites to present one unified, seamless, gospel of Jesus Christ, 
all hail the power of Jesus' name. Creation. Consider the one origin of the world. In six solar days, God created from absolutely nothing the universe and everything in it. One universal law pervades the universe, the law of kind after his kind, enumerated ten times in Genesis chapter 1. Every living thing, animal, and plant reproduces after its own kind, with his original design. Our marvelous creator conceived a tremendous diversity of life forms. The diverse, distinct, and separate races, plant life, trees, animals, fowl, fish, insects, reptiles, etc. Evolution has no part in our creation. The race of Adam kind is made in the image and after the likeness of God. The Bible is the record of this racial kind, particularly and especially that one branch of Adam's race called Israel. God's inheritors chosen from all the nations of the earth, the Bible represents one origin of the world, complete with sin's entry into the universe and later into the race of Adam. There is one definition of the spiritual, moral, and physical condition of Adam and all his posterity as a result of sin. All men are born into sin. We are born spiritually dead and subject to death, hell, and the grave. Scripture presents one pathway for the depraved members of Adam's race to be redeemed. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, by God's choice alone, and from Christ alone. The Bible quickly narrows to focus solely on Adam kind and then genetic Israel. Yes, God loves every part of his creation, for everything in it he pronounced good. He has a purpose, design, and place for every distinct and separate people in his creative work. There is but one flow of historical continuity in scripture, one standard of morality, one design of gender, male and female, one definition of marriage, one man and one woman of the same flesh, one definition of family, one command for marriage to multiply children, and one defined role for husbands, fathers, wives, and mothers. There is one standard of morality from Genesis to Revelation and to until the end of time. There is only one flow of history, one design for the end of age, and one final judgment for each person descended from Adam after they exit this life. There is one eternal state. All of these themes are taught in a comprehensive and precise manner from Genesis to Revelation in one seamless, perfect flow of truth. The preeminence of Jesus in the Old Testament. Luke 24, 25 and 26 informs us that Cleopas and his friend, walking together, had not yet recognized Jesus as the man who had joined them on the road to Emmaus. They must have been quite surprised when Jesus challenged them regarding why they didn't believe what the Old Testament said. For these sad and dejected Israelites, their encounter with Jesus on the road to Emmaus would have quite an enduring impact. For the thousand years, believers have savored the information that Jesus proceeded to share with Cleopas and his friends. Not unlike the apostles and other disciples, Cleopas and his friend did not yet understand the role that Jesus Christ was projected to display in the promises recorded in the Law, Prophets, and Book of Psalms. Had they understood that role, they surely would have known that the Savior of Israel must suffer persecution, torture, and death before rising from the grave three days later. Jesus began expounding on the scriptures relevant to himself, beginning with Moses and continuing throughout the Old Testament. 
this should have served as a major cue to clue them in on the preeminence of Jesus. Perhaps that's why St. Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 1, 23, but we preach Christ crucified. And in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Throughout Paul's writings, we're reminded that Jesus Christ is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and that in all things he might have the preeminence. From Colossians 1.18 On this topic, consider what Jesus declared in John 5.39. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And, for had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. On that late afternoon, on the road to Emmaus, certainly Jesus would have included much of the following summary of the scriptures referring to himself. Genesis 3.15 is the proto-evangelium of the gospel. Before Christ could crush the head of the serpent, something he promised the seed of the woman, he first would have to be bruised himself by the old serpent called the devil and Satan, as Christ called him in Revelation. Where was Jesus bruised? But on the cross at Calvary at the pleasure of Satan and his minions. In death, he became the perfect lamb to save his people. At his second coming, he will crush the head of the serpent, whose progeny will then die. Then Christ will be coronated king of his worldwide kingdom. Jesus would also likely emphasize to Cleopas and his friend the importance of his substitutionary, sacrificial death with the promise of his glorious resurrection from the dead. Jesus could have gone from Genesis 3.15 to Genesis 3.21, where God himself acted on behalf of Adam and Eve by giving them proper cover with skins from the bloody sacrifice of an animal. This offering could have pointed to the sacrificial blood as a covering for the nakedness of Adam and Eve when they were expelled from the garden. Abel offered the lamb as a substitutionary sacrifice for his sin, which prefigured the death of Jesus as the sinless lamb of God. Jesus surely would have pointed to Abraham taking a ram caught in a thicket as the only substitutionary sacrificial offering in place of his only son Isaac, born from the womb of Sarah. And Jesus would have guided his two friends to Exodus 12.5 and the substitutionary sacrifice of the unblemished lamb and the appropriation of that blood on the two side posts and upper door casement of the houses where Passover meal prefigured the communion of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. The death of the innocent lamb would clearly point to Jesus at every Passover celebration. Jesus would become the one and final lamb that would forever cover the sins of his people and right the wrongs of a fallen world. The Apostle Peter memorialized the redemption that Jesus Christ secured for his people in these marvelous words. Forasmuch as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who was verily foredained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. From First Peter 1, verses 18 through 20. The New Testament writers occasionally link the preeminence of Jesus Christ to ancient Israel's Old Testament history. For instance, the crossing of the Red Sea marked quite a dramatic event of deliverance for Israel. A depiction of this fantastic event came very close to being chosen for display on the Great Seal of the United States. St. Paul reminded us of this part of our history. 
Our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and all did drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. From 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 4. The living water of Jesus Christ was prefigured in water that rushed from the rock in Exodus 17, 6, and satisfied the thirst of ancient Israel and their flocks. Jehovah sent manna to ancient Israel in the Sinai wilderness to satisfy their hunger and prevent starvation. The Apostle John records the link between Jesus as the bread of life and the manna in the wilderness in John 6, 26-35 and verses 48-58. John also contrasted the manna that spiritual Israel ate in the Sinai wilderness from the spiritual bread which Jesus Christ brought his people. John 6, 53-58 contains this reference that is often read at the service of Holy Communion of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's difficult to isolate the innumerable ways in which the Old Testament has so elevated and profiled Jesus Christ. Ancient Israel at the exodus from Egypt was taken into the Sinai wilderness for a forlorn 40-year experience. Then, in the New Testament, after preparing for his ministry, Jesus Christ began to fulfill the purpose of his ministry at age 30, the typical age for a Levite priest to be ready for ministry. Following his baptism, Jesus was taken into the wilderness to be tested. This 40-day test is found in Matthew 4, verse 1-11, and Luke 4, verse 1-13. Unlike the first Adam, the new Adam of the world to come was victorious over the tempter. Jesus emerged victorious from his 40-day test, thus qualifying him to begin his ministry. Israel emerged from her 40-year test in the wilderness, wholly afflicted with the inveterate problem of sin. This left even Israelites to face the stark reality that apart from divine intervention, each of us is helpless to obey God and meet the standards of his law. Nothing less than redemption by the blood of Jesus Christ could provide each Israelite with righteousness that God's perfect law demands. Personal salvation is the divinely ordained path to access this gift from God. This gift rests solely in God's sovereign hands to dispense at his pleasure. The testing in the Sinai wilderness exposed utterly Israel's sinful nature and inability to please God. Jesus Christ and his righteousness are the only acceptable means by which the wrath of God of righteousness could be appeased. Many times, the events recorded in the books of Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers, and the summary of the law provided by Moses in Deuteronomy are intended to emphasize Israel's compelling need for a savior to resolve their sin problem. For further evidence, consider the recounting of Israel's experience with the infestation of serpents recorded in Numbers 21, verses 5-9. through 9. In their wanderings through the Sinai desert, the Israelites spent too much time murmuring against Moses and extolling the virtues of their enslavement in Egypt. In the instance cited in Numbers 21, Israel had spoken against Jehovah and Moses for daring to lead them out of Egypt. Why? Because they loathed the manna described in Numbers 21 as light bright in response to their rebellion. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. From Numbers 21, verses 6 and 7. 
Jehovah then instructed Moses to make a serpent of brass and set it on a pole so that everyone who is bitten by a venomous serpent might look upon the serpent and live. Jesus declared this in John 3, 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. By staring at the very thing that they feared, the serpent on the pole, they could be healed. The venomous nature of sin inflicted by the serpent against the woman in Genesis 3 reminds us that only Jesus Christ, the one designed to be the serpent crusher, could heal his people from the sting of sin and the poison inflicted in the hearts of its victims. Only by taking up the cross of Jesus Christ can we overcome sin and the poisonous venom of the serpent. The prophet Isaiah was inspired to write a most compelling passage on the suffering of Jesus Christ. Salvation is the personal application of this redemption upon every Israelite chosen in Christ and written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Redemption is that great reservoir of grace reserved for those who receive the gift of personal salvation. Let's follow the progression of Isaiah's prediction of the humiliation, suffering, and death of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 12. Verse 3. Jesus was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, despised, and his own people esteemed him not. Jesus bore our griefs and sorrows, was smitten of God, afflicted, and received no compassion or esteem from his own sheep people. Christ was wounded for our transgression of the law and bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement necessary for the sinner's peace was laid on him and it is by his bloody stripes that we are healed from sin and sickness. Every Israelite is a lost sheep. All have strayed from God and his righteous path. All of us stand guilty for our sins, and iniquities were laid upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ. For each of his sheep people, Jesus was oppressed, afflicted, and bore our sins in silence. Like a lamb standing before his slayer is mute, Jesus did not open his mouth. For the transgression of his people, Jesus was stricken, and for his sheep people, he stood before the righteous judgment of God. He who was sinless and holy stood in judgment and was stricken for the sins and iniquities of everyone. He saved us from the wrath of God and gave us the gift of salvation. Jesus died with the wicked and was buried with the rich. He was without sin and committed no violence or deception. Our holy God found satisfaction in bruising Jesus Christ for the appeasement of his wrath upon sin. The soul of Jesus was acceptable as an offering for sin, and in his humiliation, suffering, torture, and sorrow, God promised him that his future posterity, or the redeemed sheep people for whom he died, would prosper under his mighty hand. Our eternal God, having been a witness to the travail of the soul of Jesus Christ in his suffering and death, would find great satisfaction in this sacrificial offering for sin. God's wrath upon sin would be appeased, and the blood of Jesus Christ, the sinless Lamb of God, would justify all those chosen in election. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was totally unjust. The death of the most perfect and sinless man in the entirety of human history was put to death in the most heinous manner known. In his humiliation and death, Jesus Christ poured out his soul unto death and was crucified for us. In death, he bore the sins of many. He interceded for every soul chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. The Old Testament survey of the death of Jesus Christ 
would not be complete without a full biblical exegesis of Psalm 22. The words provide insight into the most indescribable death of Jesus Christ. This psalm is worthy of the most careful scrutiny by all who love and appreciate the price paid for our sin by Jesus Christ in his death and subsequent resurrection. The message of the cross is harsh. It addresses Jesus Christ's suffering, humiliation, and torture. However, this was the path that Jehovah God ordained for Jesus Christ to follow. The cross of Calvary is the path God ordained that Jesus would walk to atone for the sins of his people and the only means by which he could enter into his glory. Allow these words from St. Paul's epistles to close this article. Speaking of Jesus Christ, St. Paul declared this in first in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17 through 19. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all fullness dwell. And from Colossians 2, verse 9 through 10, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power.